Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Wines of Bordeaux. Visit their website at Bordeaux.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Yes, I took a few weeks off there, but I'm back post-holidays. This is the last show before the Trump administration. So let's see if we go live next week, or will they shut the lights out in Brooklyn? We don't know yet. Anyway, I want to, first of all, give a thank you to a um, bunch of people donated. You know, with the month of December, Heritage Radio is running kind of a, a pledge drive, kind of like an NPR-themed thing, because that's, you know, we're in that tank of basically non-commercial uh, radio that's driven by the beneficence of a few advertisers and listeners. And I know there was more than a couple, so I don't want to you know, shout out names or anything like that, but thank all of you who were really generous in opening up your wallets uh, and donating money to the station on account of this show. You know who you are. Thank you very much. Station appreciates it. I appreciate it. Thanks for spreading the love. Uh, pre-holidays, and we'll keep bringing you these good shows through the end of June, um, which is when I wrap up Food Talk traditionally, which is going to stay the same this year. And we've got a great show this week. Fun to be back. We've got, um, we're going to talk about something we talk about a lot on the show, and that's wine. I have a, what's your title exactly? Directories. Directories. A general manager. General manager in, in English. English. Ma- ma- that's <laughs> right. the voice of Megan McLoon. She's in from one of the great places on planet Earth, really, you know, sort of wine royalty, and that's Burgundy. Um, you think of the two great wine growing regions in France, and of course, it's Bordeaux and Burgundy. Both very different. We've had a bunch of people on from Bordeaux uh, the last couple of years here. I've traveled to Bordeaux a few times the last couple of years, and, you know, different grape varietals, different temperament. Bordeaux tends to be, well... I shouldn't characterize it. Part of the left bank of Bordeaux tends to be dominated by very large estates, uh, chateaus, technically, that no one lives in. There's a fair amount of corporate ownership. Um, It can be a bit stuffy. I kind of like what's going on on the right bank. The right bank tends to be a little more fun and loose these days. It's where more of the organic and bio uh, experimental fun work is taking place. Uh, Smaller producers, price points that we can actually afford. But Burgundy is just, it's a land of farmers, and that's never changed. It's always been that way. And um, I don't think I could put it any better than to quote Jancis Robinson in saying it's, the region is small, expensive, infuriatingly complicated, that delivers paradise in a bottle. So there we have it. It's from Jancis's lips to your ears via Mike Calameco. It's an amazing place. Uh, the wines are extraordinary. I'm old enough to remember when regular people could afford to drink the first growth Burgundies. Um, they, same thing with Bordeaux. I mean, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, they weren't astronomically expensive today. Unfortunately, they are. Um, but 
we're going to have today we're going to talk about Santine, which is a great town. Um, it's got a windmill in it, as cute as could be, and these rolling hills. But I, I think nowhere else in the world does this concept of terroir come into play more dramatically and in ways that are more self evident than Burgundy. Anyone that's traveled there and tasted knows it is remarkable the typicity of that grape, which is Pinot Noir on the red side, and that soil type. So, you know, Burgundy's kind of. Um, well, so Burgundy we're talking about red grape would be Pinot Noir, white grape is Chardonnay across the board. As you get further down into the south, you might see some Gamay being grown. Well, you can throw Beaujolais into that mix where you're going to see Gamay. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have a mix in parts of Burgundy where they're doing Gamay and Pinot Noir called Patugran. Is that the name for that? Pastugran. Pastugran. I never pronounce anything right in French, but I try. Um, and of course, with Chardonnay, you're driven by soil type. So, you know, Chablis is very distinctive for its, its limestone clay. Um, but but Burgundy's like where it's kind of like the holy grail of wine region. So Megan, how did you end up there? Because it's a funny story. You're you're from. It is kind of. I, a I'm going to get story. this wrong again. You're you're from New Hampshire. Yes, originally from New Hampshire. Originally from New Hampshire. Yeah. How did you end up in Burgundy to begin with? Well, I was living in Boston, and I uh, was working in the restaurants. Restaurant world was my background. Wanting a change, and um, met Alex Gamble through my now husband. And Alex Gamble hired me to do some financial consulting. So, and that was a great way for me to get my big toe into the wine world because I loved wine and was often thinking about opening a wine shop or maybe a little cafe or something and just never really did it. So started doing some consulting for him and my husband, who's an artist, wanted to go to Europe to get some galleries. So... We kind of said, well, let's just go. We'll go for six months to a year, this right? Is pre, this is pre-kids. Pre-kids, obviously. Yes, when, you make, <laughs> when you can make these kinds of decisions with exactly. impunity. Update your passports, drain a bank account, and take a leap do of faith. Do whatever you want, yes. right? The good usually, old days. Usually you do it in your 20s, but I decided to wait You know, an extra, I won't say how many years. Um, so we packed up and put stuff in storage and said, we'll go for six months to a year. And that way I said, well, I can learn more about the wine business there, and he can find some galleries. And we had a great, you know, opportunity, and great – Alex was very helpful and instrumental in, in getting us settled and helping with all of that. And I just kept working more and more and loving it more, and he loved it, obviously, and was great for his art. And, and you were in Burgundy the whole time? You were, we're in, in Burgundy. Okay. Um, actually in Bone. We were living in Bone, in Bone at the time. And uh, – and, you know, it just kind of rolled over into longer. We decided to buy a house that we were going to fix up and sell and then use that money and move again and go back to the States. And then, we, you know, I had my first child and kept working. And before you know it, it's been uh, 13 years and two kids, and we're still there. Congratulations. So and how did you cool. end up at Chateau Jusun? Um Actually, you know, I'd been working with Alex for about 11 years, and it was great. But I, it was time to move on. And kind of old school. You know, the Domain Gestium ran an ad, and I sent my resume in. Like, you can believe like that happens today, huh? Is there a Craigslist in France? <laughs> or is there an ad in the local newspaper? Vitti job. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So, yeah. You know, people say, what do you mean? You actually sent a resume to a job? I'm like, yeah, it still works. <laughs> that's so wild. I'm, I'm glad. I, don't so, know, I have no idea how it works anymore. Uh, so 2014, I, I took over as general manager for the domain, and uh, it's been a fantastic ride so far, and I'm looking forward to, to more. Talk to me about the decision to go organic. When and why? 
Okay. Well, you actually don't even have to tell me the why part, but you can <laughs> if you want to. The why is because it's very yeah. important to me and yeah. very important to the world and yeah. to, to all of us, you know. So that for me was pretty pretty necessary. Um, it, you know, there, when I got there, there was a lot of things that I just needed to slowly work on. And when you have a long list, you kind of have to take a step back and breathe for a minute and say, okay, let's just start knocking them off, right? right. So... Um, there was renovations to do in the winery to make it a better place. Um, hiring a, a winemaker was really important to find the right person, and I did that. I'm very And we'll get to that in a happy. minute because that's, yeah. Yeah, that's huge. Huge, huge. Couldn't do it without him. Um, and knowing that I really wanted to move the vines to be organic, and so that was always a goal, but I just knew it had to come at the right time. So I didn't push it to happen right away because if you push it to happen right away, it's just not going to be the right moment um slowly started working in because you can't shock the vines too much correct it takes years to transition out we had to for a couple years you know really work on we never they never used too much to begin with so that was a good thing and this way we could really um slowly work that in in the first two harvests that i was there and in 2016 made the official okay this is our first year of officially going organic in france it's a three-year process right to appear on the label exactly so um in 2019 will be our first vintage that we can have it on the label and so when i think of historically the winemakers that I've, i've met and regions that i've covered and traveled through um there was kind of a myth that you know because of the challenges of the grape of pinot noir to begin with uh, the weather in Burgundy, that it's, it was really going to be a very hard place for people to be organic and bio, that there was a need for a certain amount of pesticide use, a certain amount of fungicide, a certain amount of fertilizer. It's, you know, the usual litany of we've mm-hmm. been doing it this way for the last X amount of mm-hmm. years. We don't want these problems to come affect our mm-hmm. vineyards mm-hmm. and spread. Um, whereas in other places that are blessed by... Uh, a completely different, like I'm thinking of Sud de France, Languedoc-Roussillon, where you have the Pyrenees, you have the coastline, you have air moving, it doesn't rain a whole lot, you've got these wonderful dry summers, and, you know, it's like, oh, that's a great place to do organic and bio, and not surprisingly, it's the biggest region in France in terms of volume. I think it's the biggest in the world. Uh, the Loire of late has really transitioned mm-hmm. over. A lot of the great producers in the Loire, Jura. Mm-hmm. But Burgundy was, it was just sort of this, no, 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 this mentality yeah. of no, not here. And then you think of, like, La Flave and DRC, they're fine. I mean, they've been organic forever. So you, what, what was it like for you? How, was that, how do you find the mentality? Is there still that sort of old school sense of resistance? There is some, yeah. And it's been fascinating, um, you know, since moving there in 2004 and seeing the difference on the coat. You know, when I first moved there, you didn't see the green that you see now. What it looks like. Because it used to, I mean, when I, again, when I think of Bordeaux, I think of the left bank, and I've walked those vineyards so right. many times, and it's, it is dead. Right. There is nothing there. Right. There's flocks of pigeons, there are vines, and there's mm. gravel. Yeah. Nothing's growing right right it looks like the lunar landscape we have a lot more now and it's it's beautiful to see and it's it warms the heart when you when you see the green and you see the the bugs and the good things there you know but it is true that you know there's they're the naysayers and there are a lot of people that said to me are you crazy you know your your yields are going to go down it's going to be too hard You, you you can't miss a treatment when you're you know all of these things and it's okay, you know, no, yeah, maybe it'll be harder, but 
that's okay because you have to believe it in your heart. And the people that do it just to do it for the marketing purposes are the ones that I think have the harder times. Mm. Um, I will say it is a very difficult area for that because of the the mildew that we do have, yep. you know, and the, the moisture that we have. And everybody's vines are next to each other. You know, you look at those hillsides and people assume that, oh, that must be one person, but it's probably 20. <laughs> and that that's very different. And so that does make it harder. Um, but that being said, that's okay. And 2016 was a very difficult year. And there are people that have been organic for... 20 years, 15 years, and they stopped in 2016. They did. It was a tough year. It was a tough year, and they decided yeah, I know. We, that we were they were going to treat and get what they could. We were in Champaign filming in May, I think it was, um, end of May, and that was that incredible rain where Paris was flooding, yeah. and you know, I have lots of winemaker friends and lots of science, and I was getting pictures sent on my iPhone of Beaujolais, uh-huh. hail this, this big, oh, just, just ruined, Chablis, same thing, horrifying. where people lost everything yeah. to the point where forget that, forget 16, the vines were so ripped up that they may have trouble getting those vines to be productive for another year or two. Right. Right. There's a lot of fear of that. In and so the, the weather was just terrible for you guys this year, too. Oh, yeah. We, well, we had frost in April. So that just killed it. Right. Um, the good thing was is that the vines grew. I mean, that the, there was growth uh, even after the frost. So everybody was worried two years later we're still not going to have anything. Nobody's ever seen it. Um, but when you, when you would drive through the vines in May, June, it didn't, you couldn't tell there was nothing on the vines because the leaves were so beautiful. So that's making us all very hopeful that even in those areas where we had no grapes this year, we'll still have them next year. And you're um, one of the wineries where all of your – you own the land. You're not buying grapes from anyone. We only do for our Bourgogne Chardonnay and Bourgogne Pinot Noir. Um, we own a little bit of both of those, but not enough for the production that we need, so it's a combination. But everything else that we make is um, coming from our vines that we work all year long. So. Tell me about how did how did you meet your winemaker? Because that's like that is like such a huge decision. Yeah, yeah, it is a big decision. He, um, I met him at Alex Gamble. He did his internship when he was at University in Dijon, getting his DNO diploma for to be an analog. So I worked with him for a little bit at that point, and um, he graduated in 2013 from with his analog degree in university. And at that point, he went to Oregon to A to Z Winery to work a harvest. So he wasn't sure exactly where he wanted to be, but loved Burgundy, but wanted to travel around a little bit before settling down. So that was a good thing. Um, And then he actually came back to do just a six-month contract. The system in France was very different than here in terms of hiring and what people do. So there was a small contract. He was the assistant winemaker there as I was leaving. So... um, I knew that he was looking, would be looking for something at the end of June of 2014. And um, there was something about him that, you know, people said, Megan, he's too young. He hasn't had enough experience. This is a big job, you know, becoming the winemaker and managing the vines for nine hectares. And I said, yeah, but that's what I want. I want we need someone that is young, that is invigorated, that is hungry, that's looking to make their name, that doesn't have the preconceived notions, that doesn't have an idea of exactly what has to be in mm. their head. Mm. And I thought that was important. And so tell, tell me what it is, because it's funny, you know, 
there's these guys and women that fly around who sort of consult and oversee production and usually mm-hmm. show up at the at the crush and run a lot of tests and where are we, where are we? Right. But they're not there for the growing season as farmers. Right. Your guy's there. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, so he's in the field. Oh, yeah. he's, he's like that's a, it's it's year round. He's year round. He's in the vines. He manages the team that's in the vines. Um, since you know, part of the decision of of becoming organic is something that he believes in as well. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. So I had to make sure that that was his philosophy as well, and something that he was interested in. Um, and you know, in working with him, has to have the same vision that I do, and be willing to to share that with me as well. And we're we do that. And so that's really great that um, I'm confident of what he's going to do, even if it's still a new thing for him. You know? Are you in, and I should, I should, it's probably in here, but I don't like to read notes while I'm doing interviews. Um, in, in terms of the winemaking itself, are you using native yeasts or commercial yeasts? No, native yeasts. Native yeasts. Yeah, indigenous that's, yeast, yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah, no, no, no enzymes added either. Um, very much of Minimal respecting. SO2. Minimal SO2. Still add SO2, we're not natural, at but... Bottling, right. Um, and through the process. Right. I'm not going to, you know, it's... It's common. It's, I mean, it's, it's how 99-point-some percent of the wine in the world is made. Right. And, you know, it, everything has to come when it's ready. And if that step happens later, then it happens later. But right now with going organic in the vines right. and, you know, we still have a product to make and to be stable, but... That being said, it is minimal, as minimal as can be, right. is what we are. No, no, I know. And I, I sort of, I mean, I know Isabella Giron. <laughs> I was did a, I had led a panel at the uh, at the raw wine event, the first one ever in New York, a couple of months ago here in Bushwick, and a lot of my Psalm friends, Pascaline, mm-hmm. um, you know, or Alice Firing, or yeah. real fierce proponents yeah. of bio, bio, zero to do. You know, I was right. my panel was me and Tony Katuri, which is if you don't know who Tony is, he's been in Sonoma since the season. Old hippie is San Francisco based guy whose dad had some land in Sonoma, and him and his brother have been making wine since the seventies. Organic bio, no SO2. Yeah. Since yeah. the sound, like nobody wow. was doing They were like, people thought they were out of their minds yeah. back then. Like, yeah. what are you doing? Um, but then, but then I'll, I'll sit down with, you know, Joss Mayer and, and, and the guys, uh, Umbrecht and yeah. Alsace, and, and they're, they're bio and they're super clean, and you get to the SO2 discussion. And, you know, I remember Olivier Umbrecht said, Mike, you know, in a perfect world, I would love not to use any SO2, mm-hmm. but I have to ship wine, I have to ship it to the United States, I've got to ship it around the world, and I really want 100% assurance that every case is like the case before it, right. that within the vintage, I've right. got continuity. And if I if I remove that, it's just it struck him as being almost chaos. Yeah, it was just a risk. Yeah, it is a risk. Um, I think you know I've got a lot of friends where I live that make natural wines, and we drink them. I also drink wines that have sulfur in them. Um, obviously, from the winery that I work at and manage, um, that there's a. There's kind of a level where it goes too far for me to be too much. Yeah, I mean, we, that was well. I think Isabel had a thing. So, I think it was forty parts per million or something, seventy parts mm-hmm. per million. I forget what she had at the fair, but it yeah. wasn't the fair wasn't zero SO two, but it yeah. was you know zero two. Right. I forget what it was, and it varied from the reds to the whites, but right. it was somewhere in the right. forty part or seventy. Well, part the per funny million. part is, is you know, the, there's so much discussion about it all, and and it's so hard to to narrow down of what the limits are, and if you look at the limits of even a biodynamic wine, the, the limits of the SO2 is not very low. It's pretty high. 
Oh, I know. And I know. It's all. That's it's, what's so crazy about it all. It's all. It's all over the place. The whole. That's one. I mean, one of the fraught things yeah. that the quote natural wine world is now. What does it mean? Right. You know. Now we have to quant. Now there's so there's so many terms being thrown around. Yeah. That yeah. are you sans souffle? Are you minimal? Right. Are you what are you doing? What right. is? Right. I mean, I need a decoder ring now to read labels. Yeah, no, and, it's so confusing. And you know, for me, it's important to not have too much because I don't like a lot of sulfur. Um, but at the same time, have to make something that is Correct. Stable. a stable, yeah. stable so, product at this point, you know. And and does that mean that we might not maybe have something down the road with no sulfur, or one cuvee? You know, maybe that would be fun. That would be a lot of fun. But you have, so, I mean, so, I'm so you, you're in such a great place, doing such great work, and, and within such with such a noble grape. And it's yeah. funny when I think of the history of Burgundy, like you must know this, like in the last century, for most of that. Uh, you know, up until World War II, growers were growing extraordinary grapes and making great wine, but they were selling the juice to Negociant, mm-hmm. who were labeling it as such. And some of those names we still know, Jadot, right. Jouin, mm-hmm. that exactly. are not farmers, that were just buyers. Right. And then that changed in the last half of the last century right. of small growers saying, we're going to take ownership right. of this. We're going to become not just farmers, but, and, but vignerons. Mm-hmm. We're going to make our own wine in-house. Mm-hmm. And it goes in cycles. There's a lot of, you know, changes that have happened in the last 10 to 15 years since I've been there of, you know, the new generation coming in as well, taking over the family domain where the family might have sold to the cooperative before. They're now taking it over and making their own wines. There's a lot of negociants now, again, uh, small negociants, a lot of people that might work at a domain and then have their own little negociant on the side. So there's a lot of that mm. that's going on as mm. well, and it's, it makes it a very difficult market for people that are negociants, especially in a year like 2016, and especially with the pricing that's going on right with now. With the pricing's crazy. Now, the good news you is, know. so I, I'm, for some reason in my head, I guess when I studied wine back in the Jurassic era and, and was kind of acclimating myself, there were, you know, the Grand Cru's, and then there were sort of these satellite appellations, that's what we used to call them, um, that were like Santinet, that was less expensive, mm-hmm. but... Making one, I mean, that's in my in my head. That's where I used to go f- for bargains, right? Volnay Santene, Oxygenes, all the places. So, yeah. talk about your vineyards and the soil and the slopes and the differences, because you've got a. How many wines are you producing now? We produce um, twelve, thirteen wines. All red. No, you do whites too. We okay. do whites. We're eighty percent, about eighty percent red and twenty percent okay. white. Okay. So, um, you know, we have the Bourgogne Chardonnay, Bourgogne Pinot Noir, and then for the whites, we have uh, Ossé de Rest Premier Cru Les Accusos. And a Santenay Premier Cru Les Gravières. Um, and then in the reds, so we own land in Ossidores, Santenay, Pomar, mm. uh, Bone, and Volnay. Um, and, you know, the it's one of the wonderful things about coming to the new domain and being able to go through what I've been going through is to explore and experience these new appellations that I didn't know before because of where I was working. So I didn't know Santenay very well. And I didn't know Ossidores very well, but being able to taste it of what was being produced at the domain before and questioning, is this really what it should taste like? And then doing research and tasting other people's to really explore and then tasting the grapes as they come in and starting to make the wine and say, okay, if we don't do all these things, then this is what is coming out and this is what the soil is and this is how it should taste. And that's pretty cool. And among those things are oak, what style of oak, what toast oak, exactly. how long you wanted it. I mean, how, there's right. so many. I mean, there's it, so it, many you're variables. talking about tasting the juice, and I've been so lucky to have been at the crush so many, just 
for whatever right. reason, you know, in Alberino in 2010, and, and the last one was Bordeaux in 15. Um, to be there when you're actually tasting the juice, right. fresh, crush, oh. not before it goes into fermentation. Right. And it's so funny. I mean, it's, gra- it's grape juice. At yep. that point, it is grape it juice. Is. It just it reminds you. I mean, even drinking like, like Petriatus, it tasted like really sweet grape juice. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't matter. And right. then this magical thing happens called fermentation, right. which is where so much of the phenolic compounds, so much mm-hmm. of what we respond to in our nose, in mm-hmm. our mouth, are developed mm-hmm. through that through that yeah. fermentation. How long do you want that wine on lees? Right. Are you going to use batonage? Right. Are we going to do? Just, exactly. That's when the magic. To me, that's like that. Two weeks, three right. weeks, a month. Right. In some cases, you know, in Alsace, right. fermentation can take for five months because because yeah. uh, it's a you know yeah. Riesling's a really slow grape. To ferment. Right. Um, I was drinking a Muscadet the other day from Pipierre, one of his uh, Clisson, um, was the particular bottling. And, you know, I, I think it was on, on Lees for like a year. It's just, I mean, Muscadet yeah. that had like <laughs> fat and round and color. And yeah. I'm like, what the hell? This yeah. is like a game changer. Yeah. Now all I want to drink is Pipierre's right. Muscadet. I'm like, right. this is crazy. Right. This is not and what the I'm the orange used. wine that's coming out and the things people are doing. Right. That. The thing, that's correct. With the skin contact. <laughs> so, 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 so talk about that. Flesh that out a little bit for me. So you, you're in Santanay and now you're, you're, you're what, what kind of changes? Pick, pick a wine that you're working with from your vintage that you changed since you got there stylistically. How you made those changes and why? Well, um, you know, all the wine in general, we don't do a lot of manipulation. It's very important that the appellation speaks to, comes out in the wine, so that the, you don't taste through our wines and they all have a similar taste. I mean, of course, they're going to have a similar, similar thing because it's, it's one person making, it's, you know, coming from Domaine Gessium. However, you know, we want the Aussie de Rest to come out and taste like Aussie de Rest. We want the, the Gravier to taste like Gravier. The Santanés, when you taste through our Santanés, when you Santanés because that's where, where we are, you can taste that, that cherry, the, the cherry notes of Santanés. You can taste the, the little bit of that, the terroir that's there, that earthiness well, it's microbi- with the cherry. Like mo- microbial terroir is what I right. call it. That it. And that's why the yeast question was so important to me because they that expression, you keep going. But yeah, yes, yeah, that expression comes out. Yeah. And if you taste the Clos de Clojonet, it tastes different than the Gravier, which tastes different than the Calm. Yeah. But they all have that Santanés-esque behind it. And that's what's that's what's important. So you brought so, a bottle today. Let's pour some. Sorry. Sure. Well, I'll, yeah, that's so. I mean, that's why. That's. I mean, I hate to ask questions because if your answer was commercial yeast, it would have been. uh Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I would. I change the subject. But you know, to me, that's so. You're going through the effort of, of organic practices, organic farming. And what's really great is you know we're taking each hmm. each vintage. Um, we let the vintage speak to us. So. You know, if depending on what the vintage is, what the weather's been, how the grapes are, how the stems look when they come in, we're making decisions at that moment when things come in. So in 2015, it was a really hot vintage. The Volnay Briard needed a little bit more, so and the stems were absolutely beautiful. So William decided, said, you know, what do you think? Let's do whole stem. And I said, absolutely. I think that's a great idea. Why don't if you're comfortable with that? Let's throw it in and. And it's turning out beautifully, you know. And so making little decisions like that. Which is a big decision, actually. A big decision. But, right, a big decision, but is really important to be able to to think as we're doing it, not just say, this is what we do, no matter what the year is, no matter what the grapes that come in are, this is what's going to happen. And so. Who's your importer or distributor into New York? uh, M.S. Walker. Okay. And we could could find your wines. You've got good. Your yep. Okay. Yep. 
I've been out for the last couple of days, so helping this, place the wines. And this wine be would be in. high 30s, 40s a bottle? The Santonet Premier Cuvée Gravier retails for, yeah, mid 40s. By Burgundian so, standards. That's, and it's a Premier Cru. Yeah. So it's that's really, really reasonable. Really, and really reasonable. So that's part of it as well. You know, it's, um, I understand the, the pricing because of my business background, the finance and everything else, but it, it also, it's sad that it has to be so expensive. Well, it's, 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 it's completely sad, but when you have, you know, hectares selling for a million euro. Right. It, this is what happens. I Same know. thing in Champagne. Right. And in a way, it's kind of what infuriates me with so much of the California production is, you know, price of the land rises the price of the juice, and it just makes it f- – not in your case, because the $45 is – I mean, you buy this at a restaurant that's pricing properly for under 100 It's a delicious wine. I mean, I know when I – when good friends with Drew Nieperant, when, 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 you know – of course, he's, you know, Montrachet became Corton, became, now it's Batard. Yep. Uh, but, you know, he, they do a great job with getting affordable mm-hmm. burgundies on their list all the time. That's great. And that's what we want to be. We want to make really good quality, affordable burgundies. What's so the total production? We're about forty to 45,000 bottles, oh, nine hectares in total. Is the U.S. your number one market or Britain? Um, actually, France is. Oh, domestic <laughs> consumption. Okay. Yeah, a lot of domestic consumption. Um, you know, that that's part of what uh, what we're doing is kind of changing the the structure a little bit too of where the wine's going and um so, you know, it'd be nice to export to the France. About 40% of our production is kind of the goal for me. And we're working on that. We're getting there. So, so yeah, 16 was a disaster. Everyone I talked to pretty much all over France. There was so much rain in the central France and Again, hail all over the place, and you had frost, you're yeah, saying? Yeah, frost. they had frost everywhere. We had frost. Um, the owners of Domaine Gestium also own Chateau Rutas in Provence, and we had, they had frost in Provence, even. So, yeah, winemaking's... Um, it's nail-biting. <laughs> it's nail-biting. It's so funny. For those of us that sit on the other end of the bottle enjoying it, it's just like, thank you, thank you. But when you see the work involved, it's almost, I keep yeah. telling everyone, it's like alchemy to me. Yeah. How these farmers turn this thing, this grape juice, this humble thing, into what we're right. drinking in a glass. Right. It's, uh, we should just all take a moment and th- th- bow and thank everybody. Yeah, yeah they do good Well, congratulations jobs. on a great life. I thank mean, you. This is, Thanks. This is delicious. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoy it. This is delicious. I don't get a chance to drink it up. All right. Um, Domaine Jesseum, well, you can go to, go to our website and get the correct spelling. Um, it kind of sounds like it spells. Megan McLuhan has been my guest. She lives in one of those beautiful places in the world. It's really, really sort of mecca for winemaking. If you've never been to Burgundy, do that, do that, do that, do that. It's so worth it because it's still that land of small farmer vignerons that um, – <laughs> I'm not saying you don't find them in Bordeaux, but you tend to think of those kind of people in other regions of France. But in Burgundy, it's never never been more so. Thanks so much for coming Thank you on. for having me. It's been a pleasure. Enjoy New York. We're going to take a quick break oh. here and run a couple of spots for people that make this show happen. And I'm coming back with Chef Andrew D'Amico, who's to tell us what he's been doing in New York really for the last 15, 20, 25 years. He's a pro. Uh, if you know Nice Matan on the Upper West Side, he's the brains behind that. But there's more to that story. So stay tuned for that after this. Hey 
folks, Mike Calameco here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-'80s when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, The Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome, Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I recommend you try it as well. So when you think of the great wine regions of the world historically, I mean, you're, you're going to be led back to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, okay, maybe Piedmont, Italy, too. And as a chef growing up, boy, if you were working in great restaurants in the 70s and 80s, they were mostly all French, and we grew up drinking Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne with impunity. Well, fast forward to today, and I just, just got back from the 2015 Bordeaux harvest. We were there for a week with a bunch of sommeliers. It was so much fun, and I'll tell you. This isn't your grandfather's Bordeaux. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons working with this great terroir that they've lived on, this soil that they know that they've grown up with, and the great varietals that we all know and love, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec. You know, this, this style of Bordeaux now that's younger, that's fresher, that's meant to be consumed now and not cellared, because honestly, which of us has a cellar? And who wants to buy a bottle of wine and wait 10 years? So... The Bordeaux whites are amazing, uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, like, hello, two grapes that we know. The reds tell all sorts of different stories from the left bank style that are a little more Cabernet Sauvignon driven, a little more structured right bank, a little more Merlot, a little easier, um, a little more upfront friendly. But if you haven't thought about drinking Bordeaux wine, give it another shot. For 15 to $35 in that price range, which is my price range, there's tremendous value in there. So... If you're walking past a Bordeaux wild, stop, grab a great bottle. These are some of the most food-friendly wines on planet Earth. Hey, folks, welcome back. Mike Colomeco here for the second half of the show. Um, so we talk about wine. We talk about wine a lot on the show. Um, but now we're going to go back to, to my world, which is the world of, of back-of-the-house kitchen stuff. It's a pleasure to have for the first time here Andrew D'Amico, who is, well, among other things, I guess where I first came across him, you, you did the opening for Nice. Nice, nice Matan. Nice yeah. Matin. Oh, yes, that was my yeah, first Yeah, yeah, so, so Nice Matin, Upper West Side, named after a newspaper in Provence, um, uh, just great sort of classic. How would you describe a chef? Well, we went at it. Uh, we started with the name. 
So when, when you know when uh, uh, Simon Oren, my partner, yep. uh, said he wanted to do a restaurant and uh, with me, and he wanted he he had already had French roast, he had Marseille, he had uh, Lake Express, and he had pretty much uh, decided that he was going to hit a region of France with each one of his restaurants, and he asked me how I felt about doing a, uh, a restaurant that. It uh, speaks to sunshine and Provence and olive oil. And I, and I couldn't say no to that. I, I really couldn't, and because that that was really right up my alley. So uh, you know, he gave me Nice Matin, and I said, "Well, you know, I've never been to Nice, or and, uh, I think we have to go to Nice." <laughs> and I, I got a trip to Nice. And it was actually my first trip to France. Nineties. Uh, well, we opened Nice in in O four. Okay, so, so you, we were okay. we were okay. building, and I'm sorry, in O three. We were building in 02. So we went in the fall of 02. And who did you eat? Who had, so, so Maxime wasn't there then, was he, Jacques? He's uh, long gone from the Nebraska. I, th- I think he was gone, and we, we really stuck around there. We were just talking about Dan Young. Dan Young was our uh, our field guide. And, Daniel Blue. Uh, uh, no, uh, Dan Young. Who oh, Dan Young. Say, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, did you know Daniel Young? No. Great guy. Book writer and uh, author and uh, columnist for a while for uh, Daily News, I believe, right? At that time. Uh and Oren had uh, befriended him at Marseille when he opened Marseille. Dan Young had uh, written a book on Marseille. Anyway, we had mm. Dan Young to guide us. Mm. And I really wanted to go and taste uh, Soka and I wanted to taste Panisse and I wanted right. to really – Soup de Poisson. You know, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I hadn't – I did not do the cuisine uh, previously. So I, I got books. I, you know, I read about it and this was really – Something that I've done over the years. When, when, when I go to do a project, I study up on it, and I try to get to that area and, uh, and, and eat the food there. And, uh, you know, it just it sung to me. Yeah, and for those that have not been to that part of France, I mean, it's, it's kind of – it's the part of France that's the most Italian, if you would. It's a sort of borderline. At one point, it was – Italy, the Italians were there. So hundred years, hundred years. So were you, so you, coastlines, so lots of seafood, lots of herbs. You know, tomatoes, olive oil, um, just really light, fresh, delicious. I don't want to say simple, but not as technically driven as other places in France. You cry, and that well, way you're Italian. Cordesley, you go through the market, and yeah. it's just it's, un, it's unbelievable. Yeah. You know what what you find there, and then. When you go through the the the, uh, the streets of the old city, I, you know I'd wake up every morning and just walk and walk and walk. I was just blown away, you know, walking through the old city, walking, walking through the the market. It was it was very moving and uh, you know very inspiring. So I was glad I got to do it. It really helps. I mean, you know, I think a lot of restaurant owners now that have concepts like this are doing that just that thing michael white you know you travel you send your crew with you you travel you go there and you come home with what they call the boom bagage right you have these ideas of and i'll, I'll never like super possible all the simple things like all over nice right i'll never forget my going there for, for the first time i think i was a chef at the parker meridian at the maurice and every year they had a um a Christmas raffle where mysteriously someone would win a trip to France, and it was always somebody from the kitchen. I don't, know. I don't <laughs> think this was rigged, but it was always one of us. So fortunately, uh, yeah, fortunately. <laughs> so one year it was my wife and I, and you, I remember just that, like that first time of ordering some poisson and getting it with the riz and the little toast on the side, and then putting my spoon in this murk of I don't know what it was, and it yeah. was just so effing good. Yeah, like what the hell? How did they do this? And of course. 
you know, later on, you think about it. I went back, and my chef was Christian Delouvre, who's a great, great, great guy, one of great my mentors. Guy. And, you know, oh, yeah, you know, and, was, and of course, it was like basically it's all kinds of seafood cooked with crustacean shells. And then you just grind the shit out of it. Like yep. Hobart used to have those big attachments, those yep. big paddles. Yep. And yep. it just like. That's just how like, you made it. That's, that's, that's how we learned it. <laughs> Lobster bisque as well. Correct. <laughs> so, when, uh, again, Nismatan was 2003 and 2004. Alex uh, Urania, who we spoke about earlier, right. who opened Marseille for him. Right. Uh, moved on, and Oren asked me to uh, take over Marseille at that point. And I said, well, Oren, I've really never been to Marseille. I think I have to go taste bouillabaisse. And his response was, ah, bouillabaisse, it's all bouillabaisse. <laughs> and again, we went to Dan Young, who uh, hooked us up with three days. I, my, my, when, when I tell you that we ate bouillabaisse two meals a day for three days— <laughs> Uh, at the end of it, I was really kind of grossed out. And they were all different. And that's what we have to remember. Yeah. Soup de poisson right. in one restaurant Correct. is a, is their soup de poisson. Right. It, you know, everyone does it differently. Right. And the same thing with the, the bouillabaisse, which was fabulous. And uh, every one of them had their own thing going on. But I learned a lot from that as well. And I also learned about Pernod at that point. <laughs> yeah. So so what got you, just to back it up, what got you into cooking? Because you're younger than I am, but, you know, I think – you weren't part of that generation that grew up where cooking was cool. I mean, I know when I got into cooking, you know, when I was like in high school, way back in, you know, the, when dinosaurs walked the earth, if you said to your guidance counselor, you know, your aspiration was, I don't even know if chef was a word in America then, honestly, the head cook, at a, they'd look at you like, that was like working at Jiffy Lube, like that's your aspiration, kid? So yeah. what, what, was, what was it that drew you to, to You know, Steve, Stephen told me you were probably going to touch on that subject, and I, and I, I, I laid in bed this morning trying to remember <laughs> when I got in and why I got in, and uh, so yeah, I, I could. I, you don't want I, I could answer. No, I, because yeah, I was a musician, and that's a typical. That's a typical story. Well, you I, know, was studying, art, I was studying artists. music all through. I was a guitarist, studying jazz guitar all through high school. Was in bands. Went to Temple University for five minutes as a music minor. Mm -hmm. And what happened to me was, at some point, by then I was in my early twenties. Yep. And I'd been, I had been cooking already for 10 years because that's, that's how I made a living. I started cooking in junior high and high school. You did. And, and it just occurred to me one day that A, nearly all of my heroes were dead junkies. B, the ones that were still alive and, quote, successful had day jobs. Like if you were a jazz guitarist in exactly. Philadelphia in the 70s or 80s, you, Pat Martino or DeBruno, I mean, you, you were probably doing something else nine to five, five days a, day a week. Right, hauling your amp into a bar and hauling it out for you. And I'm like, do you really want to effing do that? And they're like, I guess I'll just cook. I mean, it's yeah, kind of fun. I went to my wife's, at, my, at the time, my girlfriend's uh, best friend's restaurant to be her busboy. <laughs> And uh, that's where I started, and I kind of I wasn't crazy about being a busboy. And it was very interesting. This, and so it's 75. I figured out that it was 75 that, this, that I decided that I wasn't going to be a musician anymore. <laughs> I was about to go back to school to become an accountant, and I needed a day job. And uh, I got into a restaurant and started as a busboy. And... Uh, it's, it's like timing is everything. And at my wife was working for a couple that, uh, as a nanny, and, and these people came to me and they said, you know, are you interested in food? And I said, yeah, I love food. I'm from this Italian family. It's all about food. If there's food and there's more food. And, and I wasn't a cook, but uh, I said, you know, there's this program called the Culinary Institute of America. And 
I looked at it and I, I was in a restaurant. I moved to the back of the house and I was a pot washer and a dishwasher and I helped the one cook and, uh, you know, got involved slightly. And, and I, I just decided at that point that I was going to get into cooking. I mean, I did not grow up in it. I, it was not something that I was doing uh, when I was in high school. I did other jobs when I was high school, in high school, but I, I always worked. And I, uh, you know, I just, I just jumped right into it. I, I went from the dishwasher job to a prep job where I spent hours and hours and hours a day cleaning shrimp. I'd go home stinking like shrimp. And All of us. I mean, doing, when I say, doing, so when I say cooking in high school, I, I started in the pot. Actually, I started as a busboy, then morphed to the back of the house to like the pot sink. Same start. And then a, somebody calls in sick and can you're you cooking. open oysters? Yeah, I can open. You're that guy. Yeah, that And guy. then you're the garmage guy. Yeah. But it all was kind of seductive because you're this, for me, I was a teenager in a world of adults. Yeah. And back then it was very unschooled. I mean, it was, yeah. it was suburban Philadelphia People were smoking cigarettes in the kitchen. The yep. chefs were all these ex-military dudes wearing T-shirts and right. cursing and drinking. And waitresses were all these older women wearing funny shoes. But it was like I had like ringside passes to like another life. And it kind of appealed to me. And you worked nights, so it was like counter like schedule-wise. It just got into me. So you ended up going to the CIA at some point. You I went to CIA. Okay. I, you know, we'll, I got serious. We'll, 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 we'll uh, name drop is always funny. I, I did – is always fun. We, I did room with Dean Ferring oh, for shit. a while. And Dean was quite a wild man. And I was I – was, I consider – What you know, year? Again, I'm, I'm thinking about how old I felt. So I, I – I, I camped in a campground for for, for a semester because I couldn't bear to be in in in, in, a dorm? in a dorm, and I had to do my first couple of weeks, my first semester, I guess, or partial semester in a dorm, and then I moved to a campground, lived out of my Volkswagen bus for a period of time, and then <laughs> what year I, was this? So I went to school. I started cooking in '75. I was in school by '76. So you were there before me. That's crazy. Yeah. So I, I, when I was figuring it out, I was in school '76 to '78. Yeah, I graduated. You had to do an internship. You had to I, leave and go work six months or something. I the didn't field. have to go on internship for oh, some guess. reason. Okay. I was, I was an older guy, so they didn't, they <laughs> didn't make you. me. Do I it. had to go when I was an older guy. I worked man. every weekend. I drove. I lived on Long Island. I drove back to Long Island every weekend. I worked. From Friday night to Sunday afternoon. And then back to Poughkeepsie. And then I went back to Poughkeepsie Monday morning. I'd get up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning to be at class at 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I did that for, for, for the two years. And I came out and, you know, I, I roomed with Dean, which was a hoot at the time, especially when uh, it's great to run into him, to run into these guys. My first job was at the uh, Berkshire Hotel. Uh, so now we're talking about 78. And the Berkshire Hotel in 78 had just uh, reopened as the the restaurant was the Rendezvous. Uh, Wolfgang Puck and Patrick, his partner, were the consulting team at the restaurant. Uh, Emeril was one of the cooks on the line. No way. It was me and Emeril. No way. And a a bunch of union dudes. Uh, you know, it was. It, it well, was you were, a, had to have been in the union. Yeah, it was. You a, had to. It was, it was. I remember when I came to New York. My first job was the Four Seasons restaurant. Yeah, and you were in the union. Next thing you knew, you were getting deductions out of your paycheck, and it was just they, they didn't pay you any fucking overtime. There was no benefit to it that I could get. I mean, yeah. like I went to the dentist once, but you know, we worked eighty hours and got paid for thirty-five. But it was we were unionized. Somehow. You were unionized, but it was a great. I always say that it was a great experience. That uh, uh, 
the, the first three years of my career were spent in hotels. I transferred after one year to the Parker House in Boston mm. and uh, spent uh, two years in a crazy, wild, very busy environment where uh, as the chef's first sous chef. My interview there, I was sitting in a hallway and listened to the chef screaming at the F&B director that he didn't want a sous chef. <laughs> and that was the sous was chef. Was he French? Was, no, these guys, these guys were Portuguese. You Portuguese, know, there's okay. a, there, It was a big uh, Portuguese por- family up yeah, there. Yeah, Him yeah. and his, uh, his cousin were still His name was Joe Rebus. And he's uh, just a great guy. I mean, my, my two years there were just so instrumental in, in teaching me about organization. So he's fighting with the F&B, who's actually his boss. Who's is this woman? Who, I remember even when I'm, I was an executive chef in a hotel. Unfortunately, the food and beverage manager was above you. I don't and the only person above them was the GM. But the fucking F and B, she had to listen to. No he didn't want a sous chef. Didn't want a sous chef. And I was in the hallway. The, the company, the the uh, it was the Dunphy Corporation, which was uh, you know an old yeah. uh, uh, group that owned hotels at the time. They had decided that they Eberl's got shipped out before me. He got shipped to to uh, Portland, Maine to run one of the hotels there. And I, it was a year later, and I, I wanted to move on. And uh, they, they, there I was. I moved to Boston, and we had our first child there in Boston. And uh, it was uh, probably two of the most important, influential years of my life in, in, in as far as uh, learning how to organize and, and run kitchen multitask. We had mm. three restaurants mm. and a gigantic banquet department. Right, uh, catering, which is yeah. where the money is. I just have... Just fond memories of tons of us sitting around tables, tornaying potatoes for hours, and then tornaying mushrooms. Yeah, Do you remember, remember when you tornado yeah, mushroom? Bing, bing, bing. And you probably could pick one up. I, have, I haven't or... tornado mushroom in so long, but I know that I could uh, pick one up and do it if I had to. Yeah, because right you've literally done it muscle memory. You've done it so many yeah, thousands of times. We did it for hours. Yeah. Yeah, big buckets of water, everything would go into when you were done. And there you go. Yeah, that's those were the days, man. I mean, I was spent two and a half years at Tavern on the Green because I wanted as a, as a chef coming up, I had already checked off like the three star box, the fine dining box. That I was a chef at Cellar in the Sky back way back when when Eberhard Mueller was there, and you know, was, after all those jobs, I'm like, I got to do volume because you as a kid, as a kid coming up in this business back then, especially, you kind of wanted to have a, as broad a resume as you could, yeah. so you weren't a niche guy, you weren't just a three star guy, you know, with like a tweezer guy today. So t- and Tavern paid a fuck ton of money. Yeah, I remember it, uh, Windows in the World was run by Inhilco, and they didn't pay shit. You know, by then I'd been in New York for five years, and I was, you know. You remember what it's like coming to the city. You don't make any money. You barely have a day mm-hmm. off. You're working six days a week, and you're broke all the time, basically. Um, and then I, I knew what Tavern paid when that job came up. I'm Tavern like, was a monster. I needed the money, and I wanted to see what it was like to ride that dragon. So I replaced Frankie Crispo as the you night did. chef. You did, as yeah. chef. Yeah, night chef. Well, Stefan Koff was the chef, and then when Stefan left, I got him ripped with the marmals. Frankie Crispo. Frankie Crispo, he, I replaced That's him, and then he went to work for somebody else. Because Frankie and I knew each other back then. He he just had got done at La Cote Basque, and I just got done downtown. Wow. Uh, yeah, Tavern was just insane. It was triage. It was triage every day. Was I, like, I was blown away when I had my tour of that kitchen. But Patrick, remember? Patrick, Patrick Clark, Clark, one of the greats. One of yeah. the greats. R.I.P. Died way, way too young. Yeah. Patrick was opened up. So when so you ended up coming back to New York, you ended up at the sign of the dove. Now, this is so funny because people don't remember. I mean, the city's changed so much, but you know, the Upper East Side had like discos and clubs, and Maxwell's Plum was probably still around back then. Oh, absolutely. And Sign of the Dove was a big freaking deal. It was a husband wife. He was a dentist, I think. Well, okay, so Sign of the Dove was opened on, by Dr. Joe Santo right. in the early 60s. And uh, by the time I got there in 82, uh, 
it had gone through a phase or two. It had had its ups and downs. I mean, he had done uh, wonderful things with not only the, with the Dove, but uh, the private dining area in the top floor of the Dove, the second floor of the Dove. I mean, let's remember Nixon lived around the block. Uh, Jackie O uh, frequented the restaurant. Yeah, the Upper West Side. Uh, where you, if you were successful in New York back then, that's where you lived. Upper East. Upper, upper East. East excuse me, upper East. Upper East. I mean, that's that. It's so far. Downtown was nothing. There was nothing. I mean, everything was Upper West or Upper East. It upper was East crazy. Was shit. It was crazy. Yeah. And he had his club, his whole club thing he had going on at 60th Street where he had Yellow Fingers. Right. And, all around, and he right. had a whole, I, that I, it was before my time, but apparently it was this, you know, rip-roaring underground uh, nightclub. You know, Joe was... Uh, you know, famous for wearing uh, Nehru jackets, at the, inventing the Nehru jacket for all that, from what I understand. And uh, he was quite the uh, quite the guy when it came to uh, dressing, and and he had a clothes shop on top on top of everything else. He God was bless him. But uh, I got to the Dove in '82 as a sous chef, and the the chef that I went to work for there as a, as a sous was actually one of my early mentors when I when I was in CIA. I had mentioned I came home on the weekends and I worked at a country club on Long Island and I had met him there the second year that I was in school. And uh, this guy, as he likes to say, I, unless he was teasing me, I wouldn't put it beyond him to have done that. Uh, I think he literally jumped the boat. He was he was an Italian, classically Italian-trained uh, chef. Uh, younger than when I think about it, he was probably at that time in his early 30s, maybe late 30s. And... Uh, I worked with them at the country club when I got out of school. I, uh, I, I worked with him at the Berkshire place. Mm. He was there. And after I came back from Boston two years later, he was at Sign of the Dove. So I went there to be his Sue. It was a much smaller city back then. There just were not it, that many places. It to work. was, and I, I you know, I, I often think about it as, as much as I, I learned from, from his name was Angelo, Angelo Serpi, uh, you know, he was a great guy. It was very, he was the guy that I probably cooked with most in in that career. Between when I was going to school, came out and worked at the Berkshire, and then came back from Boston and worked at Sign of the Dove, he was my guy. So, so these days you're in charge of Nice Matin, Marseille, and Five Napkin, and uh, Nizza and Five Napkin, and Nizza as well. Yeah, okay. after, after 20 years with Joe Santa, you know, I stayed with him for 20 years doing the Dove. Uh, doing Arizona 206, I took over after uh, um, a number of the chefs had had moved on. Uh, I, I'd another big at, restaurant, I'd, another upper east side. I'd hit. worked as corporate chef for for Joe, for you know, for Joe Santo over those years. Towards towards the end, uh, we built a restaurant called uh, Bolivar, which I was very proud of, and and had a, a, a great chef that worked for me there. His name's Larry Kohler, who uh, you know we we. It was a, a concept restaurant. At the end of all that, in in uh, in '02, uh, we pretty much closed up. Joe Joe closed uh, the operations, and and I uh, I hooked up with with Simon Oren, who's done remarkable work. I mean, he's just yeah. had one success after another, which in this town, as we know, is really a hard trick to pull off. He has a long run. I mean, he's you know he started with French roast. It was probably that you know in in '02 was probably already. Possibly ten years old or, or five years old, eight years old, somewhere around there. And uh, he had a restaurant uh, named Madfish on the Upper West Side. Do you remember that one? No. 
Yeah, I had never gone to it myself, but I think the the, the, the Upper West Side truly was the wild frontier at that point for for restaurants. There, were, there wasn't a lot going on. Yeah, it was always. I lived on the Upper West Side for years. It was a it was a black hole. It was strange. There was money there. There was shopping. You had yeah. Zabar's and Barney Greengrass and Fairway and Citadel, but there were no, like no restaurants to speak of. For some reason, yeah. nobody could make it. Stick. Tom Tom came up. Valenti Valenti did West. Valenti Val- Val- did West. Yeah, Peacheline was doing well down on his end on Sixty Seventh, wherever he was. Yeah. And uh, Terrence. Anyway, I, I did Nice with uh, we opened up Nice Matan in two thousand three, and and uh, and you got great reviews. We got great I remember, reviews. I, think I remember eating there with one of Brian Miller's ex wives, and De Ravel met me there for some strange reason. Um, what was that about? I don't remember. I think I was planning a trip. Yeah, that's what it was. I was planning a trip to 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 Gascony. And to the Armagnac region, and that's where she was living, and she yeah. heard about this. So I, she said, "Why well, she was living in the neighborhood anyway?" That's just like, like trivia. But I remember you got two stars, three stars off the bat. It was we got, we got, we got two stars. Brian Miller from Post Miller, Post Miller, Post Miller. Ruth, who did we, who did we decide it was? That uh, was Grimes. Oh, Grimes. So it was Bill Grimes. His tenure. Okay, it was Bill Grimes. Uh, Brian Miller had reviewed uh, Sign of the Dove twice, so Sign of the Dove was three stars. To, yeah, to it was a big deal. And, big deal. Uh, and Nismatan was, you know, Nismatan was a real. We opened up as a real neighborhood uh, cafe bistro. We from the we did breakfast from the beginning, uh, thriving, uh, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, brunch, big brunch business, uh, and uh, it was, uh, you know, it's it's quite a successful restaurant. Really, is neighborhood restaurant. We're touching on fifteen years this year. No, to to succeed on the Upper West Side takes some special magic because yeah. I, I'm Frankie Crispo had Andiamo there for a while and right. Lou Futterman was his quote partner and you know I've known so many restaurants that have come and gone. I mean Luxembourg's been there a while. So that's the old McNally team. It really is a we were just talking about that earlier. I mean it that that it really is a staple in that part. It of is, but there's just not a whole there's not a whole lot of other options. Well there are now. There are um, now. I think I think they're there. You know, April just uh, opened yeah. up a block away, which is great. And Danielle Blue's uh, got a couple places around the corner from. Lincoln we opened Center. up Playa Betty, which on Seventy Fifth Street in the old Citrus Space, uh, which is a, a great restaurant, a California beach cuisine uh, restaurant, which is doing fabulous. And we have five napkin on Eighty Fourth. Did you have Broadway. to go to California to the beach for research for that? I did do it. I'm I'm not the lead on that one, although I'm I'm part of it, and I. Uh, I, I slaved in the kitchen for a good five weeks as a line cook. It's a, you know imagine doing that on, on as a as a partner operating chef, but it, it was a great time. Uh, uh, line cooking's tough, man. The older you get, line cooking's a fucking. It, it's, it, it's it's for kids. It, it's it's not easy, but it's good to go in there and do it once in yeah, a while. Yeah, and it also shows the boys you've got the working the dish pit's always good as well. <laughs> I did that this past week. You know why? No call, no show. You just felt like it. Just to help somebody that was down. Okay. I mean, you know, this is in our one of our places. What's in your Yonkers. Ch- so these days, you know, a minute or two ago, so you all the, everybody I talk to says the same thing, and, and maybe you'll be different because you're running an organization that's doing so well. But what's the biggest challenge in terms of staffing these days for you? Is it hard to find cooks? What to stay? you just said, staffing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think the business has grown just so so quickly. It's so huge. Uh, you know. I'll, be honest. I mean, my restaurants. I don't see CIA grads. I, I every day I scratch my head and I go, where do all those CIA grads go? In the old days, uh, you know, I had good connections with the uh, the red, was it the restaurant school and French Culinary Institute. Mm-hmm. We got lots of externs and they were tied in and 
Uh, These are dove days. Uh, You know, we had a lot of people coming through that uh, were trained, that that, that's what they wanted to do. Uh, It's a little bit – the labor pool is is getting tighter. Uh, And, you know, I I would say that it's – the biggest challenge is is getting people that are doing it because they have – you know, a passion to do it, and they really have a drive to do it right and to do it well. Not maybe, maybe not even always your way, but they they really understand what's right and wrong, and are, are, not are looking you, for the shortcut. Have you had any talk of the minimum wage rising? Is, are you guys discussing this idea of, of of no no tip across the board in all your restaurants? We haven't started that in our group yet. Uh, do you see but, it as something on the, on the horizon as an inevitable? Listen, if the if the whole if the whole if the business swings that way, we will. Uh, uh, I we, again, like I said, we haven't really spoken about it. I'm not sure whether it applies to uh, every restaurant in the industry. I, I think there's different levels mm-hmm. of. It's uh, so a hierarchy of, of restaurants or our neighborhood style restaurants. Maybe does that does not apply. Uh, I've only been to one or two recently, and. You're kind of looking at the menu a little cross-eyed when you're looking at the pricing, and you start scratching your head and going, "Oh yeah, the the gratuities included." <laughs> you know, I think, and that's when be... you're in a restaurant that you expecting the pricing to be a little bit higher. You know, it's going to be. I mean, so, the next couple of years are going to be a real interesting time for New York restaurants. I think for a whole bunch of reasons, and no. that's another one. I think the public's going to have to get used to this idea. Sadly, um, as more people go to to no tip and be able to. Just, to have a little more pay equity within the organization so the back of the house can make a little bit more, front of the house maybe has to make a little bit less, we, so we can, you know, it, now it's not just tips that we pool and keep up front, but it's a, it's a, it's a wad of cash that we disseminate on our own. Um, and minimum people, wages just went up. And minimum wage is going to keep going up, and, yeah. and the, uh, you know, people are going to, it's going to be sticker shock with menus. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Chef. Great to meet, finally. I don't know how I, I didn't meet you all these years, but uh, Andrew D'Amico has been around New York Longer than me, and I, I can. It's very. I think the last guy I said that to was Curry Hefferton when he was sitting across the table from me. Great guy, uh, yeah, great guy. <laughs> I mean, this is the OG New York back in the day stuff. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, continued man. success, man. Thank you, man. Guys, stay tuned. We got a great show coming next week. I've got Risto Zazowski, sommelier for the Altamirea Group. He is in Burgundy right now as we speak. He'll be back, and my guess is we're going to talk about Burgundy for the better part of an hour. Take care. See you next week. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.